0: Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and I'm with Audrey Waters, and it is December 5th, 2011. We're a couple of days late, but this is our weekly podcast, so we're a couple of days late, and we're actually doing two weeks in one time.
1: That's right. But we'll I, have a lot to cover here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we promise to be swift and speedy. Okay, so I thought we would actually combine the uh, weekly roundups and do those at the end.
1: That so sounds
0: we'll good. Um love the post of, what's the future of the edtech business model? Uh, in part because there's this whole question about who controls apps now and if apps become sort of the primary way in which we're getting programs and programming there's this sort of hidden story of control of those apps you talk specifically about Rosetta Stone and -hmm. the direct-to-consumer model so uh, this world in which learning is happening more and more outside of schools what is the impact of the app?
1: well I think that you know, apps have been, I think, one of the great things about the app and the rise of the, the app marketplace it is, is it is a, an ability for folks to get um, a piece of software built and distributed without a lot of that overhead. And I think Rosetta Stone is a great example of that. You think of all of the kiosks that they've put in place, the boxed software kiosks at the airport, which was a great model at one time for making sure that anyone who was traveling and sort of thought, uh, uh, you know, oh, I need to learn a foreign language before I get to Spain. I can sort of buy a, a piece of software, at, you know, at the airport. And things have definitely changed now with the i with iTunes and the Android market. Um, there's a whole new distribution system, and so there's ability for people to make um, smaller, you know, smaller apps. Or I mean, in terms of the scope of a the scope of the software, um, smaller apps, smaller companies. A lot of opportunity, I think, for new startups to get their foot in the door. But like I, read, like I write about in that post, when things are free or when they're 99 cents, that also changes the game. It certainly means a company like Rosetta Stone, um, arguably fairly overpriced, but but you know Rosetta Stone is going to struggle to make that leap into the ni- an, a marketplace where apps cost 99 cents.
0: Although you do talk about the subscription model and how much sense that makes.
1: Right. And I think that's the path that uh, Rosetta Stone is actually going to take.
0: You know, I've I've done a couple of subscriptions for different services where I pay a dollar a month. And it's very interesting. It feels like nothing. And then it aggregates to $12 a year. And I noticed that I balk at something that costs $12. (laughs) So, felt like there were several themes in here that are going to play out through the discussion today. Uh, um, part of it being the direct to consumer model, yes, and uh, certainly Rosetta Stone did that. They made a conscious choice at some point, right?
1: Right, they did, and that's when they became, you know, I mean, I think the Rosetta Stone—you'll still find people using Rosetta Stone in schools. I mean, and they—they they were an education company first and foremost, but they made a decision um, to to sort of bypass that those enterprise sales and to and to make it make their product available to consumers rather than rather than school districts.
0: There's also the question of the size of businesses and and reminding ourselves that companies of this size both have power to shape a marketplace uh, more power than we would like to concede in this new world. Um, but also a real interest in maintaining things uh, the way that they have gone, and so I'm sure Rosetta Stone's not alone in terms of companies that would want the market to go a certain direction for themselves, right?
1: Right, right. But I think that even you know even new companies, and this is um, when I wrote about the children app manifesto, even new companies I think are recognizing that that this race to the you know the dollar the dollar app. Um, it's, it's going to be problematic for a lot of them to survive. I mean, it's one thing if, you, if you're just an individual developer, you know, selling your app for a dollar, you can probably make, you know, uh, an okay living. But once you sort of expand your development shop, if you're hiring, you know, hiring a lot of people or engaged in, uh, in a sort of research, R&D, explorations, 99 cents isn't really going to support... You've got to sell a lot of apps at 99 cents to sort of be able to float a whole business.
0: The third piece here for me, and uh, have you read the Jonathan Zittrain article from Harvard Law on the personal computer is dead? I
1: haven't. Can you no. see that?
0: Okay, so this is about the the fact that the the telephone was always sort of a dumb device for us. So when Apple turns it into an iPhone and then starts selling apps through the iPhone, we're not really thinking of it in terms of a computer. But this behavior of controlling what apps get on and then taking thirty percent of every app very much falls in the same category of Microsoft's behavior with Internet Explorer,
1: Interesting. maybe,
0: maybe even more so. And I think we're going to see a really interesting uh, discussion, cultural discussion about this, because clearly Google, Android, less so, but Apple significantly, is now controlling what gets on that device.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I think that we're, you know, the, the, the Android marketplace less so, but particularly now the Amazon is sort of offering us a, a smaller slice of the Android marketplace as part of their own, um, you know, their their app marketplace and their push into Android with the Kindle Fire. Um, but I think you're right about Apple as well. I mean, we saw, you know, there was a, some hubbub in the news last week, I think, when um, that people were discovering when they were doing searches with Siri, the new voice-activated search in the latest iPhone, that it was coming up with, you know, it was coming up with responses that perhaps um, some suggested seemed to dovetail with some of Apple's um, some of Apple's sort of social policies that it likes to impose on its marketplace.
0: Of course, it does. <laughs> okay, well, we, we're going to come back to that. So, uh, Kickstarter. Uh, yes. This is something I haven't really tracked very closely. Uh, you have a number of links on the don't go back to school idea, mm-hmm. uh, and specifically uh, a handbook that looks as though $30,000 has been pledged to the writing of this handbook. Um, Tell me about this.
1: Yeah, well, the Kickstarter model I find really interesting. It's this notion that, you know, you can come up with a project and rather than go through tra- traditional funding mes- methods, in the case of a book, right, it's it's getting a book proposal into a publishing house. They're agreeing to, you know, to, to publish it, and sometimes you get an advance. Sometimes you just get a cut of sales. But in the ca- case of Kickstarter, it's actually crowdfunded. And if you can get enough people to indicate and to pledge support for your project, if you reach your sort of funding level, then you know the um, you'll get you'll get that you'll get that chunk of money that's been sort of crowd crowd sourced or crowdfunded by people. Um, the go- don't go back to school project is a book that's being written um, that that looks that's sort of arguing that really school isn't necessar- isn't um, necessary anymore or it isn't necessary for everyone, I should say. And Keo Stark is actually, she actually teaches it, um, I believe she teaches it at NYU, um, and she's sort of looking at the ways in which self-taught people um, have sort of been able to find the resources and the community um, and the sort of the discipline, to use that word loosely, um, in order to sort of learn things themselves without, without going back to school.
0: Sorry, I turned my mic off and forgotten. <laughs> so, how much of this is an isolated meme, and how much is this is getting into the larger culture? I mean, this question of questioning uh, the cost of college education and of what you really get—is uh, this an isolated discussion, or do you think this is happening in broader ways?
1: I think it's happening in broader ways, and I mean, in part, partly because we see all of the, you know, and this this story was sort of dovetailed around the time when there was the pepper spraying event at UC Davis. But I think we're seeing, you know, we're seeing more and more students balk at the cost of the cost of tuition. We're seeing, um, you know, we're seeing universities sort of come under fire for um, uh, for that. The the student loan debt um, is is surpassed credit card debt. Um, but I'm just still not sure if we have all of the pieces in place so that if people do pursue their own education, that they actually have. Um, some sort of evaluation or assessment that's gonna gonna suffice um, as an alternative to a college degree.
0: So I spoke at a higher ed event this last week and it made me think what is the real value of the physical college experience? And is anybody, is there an institution that you feel you've noticed is doing a really good job of focusing on that and making that their kind of core mission driver? So that if in fact we do, the bubble does pop, and there's a lot of questioning of higher ed, are there people positioned to say this is really why you're here and why you should be here?
1: Well, I think you know, I think that the you know one good place to look, and perhaps it's unfair because it's you know one of the top schools, but any of the schools that have long invested in the open courseware movement, like MIT, I think they realize that you can put the sort of course content, make it the course content available online make it openly you know openly licensed so others can use it. And yet none of that stops people from actually going to school at MIT. There's something valuable in the degree, sure. But there's also I think you know the, the faculty there have agreed that there's actually something that they offer as professors as mentors in a face-to-face classroom scenario that really is valuable. It's learning from the teachers and it's learning from other students. it's getting to meet and be, Um, be with them, having access to sort of equipment, um, uh, particularly in the case of the sciences, equipment that you just wouldn't be able to get otherwise.
0: Fascinating. Going to be very interesting to watch, I think. Okay, I want to aggregate, if we can, three posts that revolved around the Kindle and or the iPad. So you and I both did the same thing. We sent our Kindle Fires back.
1: You sent yours back as well. Interesting. I
0: did. Yes. Um, so tell, tell me about this. Amazon's now saying on their webpage that the Kindle Fire is their number one selling product. What, what's your sense after the, sort of the dust has settled here?
1: You know, the, it's interesting because I um, I was really disappointed with the Kindle, and I and I think I was you know I was looking and I should say this when we've talked about this before. I'm an Amazon customer um, and an Amazon Prime member as well. I wanted a device that would let me take advantage of what was what I knew would be sort of the Amazon the Amazon products, and it was just an it was an unsatisfying experience. It wasn't a good reading experience. It was a not a good browsing experience. It wasn't a good tablet experience. I couldn't watch movies um, very well on it. Um, I sent it back. And I have to wonder, even though I, I know the $200 price point is really exciting for people, I have to wonder if uh, if this isn't going to actually, after this initial sort of burst of sales, this isn't going to stir more interest in the iPad because the iPad or, or other or perhaps this is another opportunity for another well-designed Android tablet, because the Kindle Fire is just—it's just not good hardware. It's just not good software.
0: Well, I'm interested in in how you've sort of brought out today this idea that the App Store and Amazon is so sort of crassly commercial.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That I mean, is it going to draw attention to that? I—that's—that's. That's, I'm going to wonder about that. The textbook piece of it. Mm-hmm. I had, You know, I find it very hard to imagine the Kindle Fire becoming a replacement for textbooks. No way.
1: Yeah, in no way. In part
0: – well, in part because I'm wondering how many students are actually reading textbooks. <laughs> really? I mean, I, you know, uh, how many are borrowing, you know h- – how much actual textbook reading is really being done? And is there sort of another disruption that might take place there?
1: Well, but I think c- that's a good – I think that's a really good point. And I think that the, if there is textbook reading being done, it's – you know, it's – it's always been done, I think, with a lot of sticky notes and highlighters, and now whether those are digital or, you know, real. But I, I just don't think that that small, uh, that small screen, that small, um, the, the small Kindle Fire screen, is conducive at all to a textbook.
0: Well, and I kind of wondered, you know, the, the moment of transition from the textbook to electronic, will it actually call the whole textbook into question? Because making that transition will be so hard i'm thinking especially because of the note-taking piece that you know that will we sort of rethink the textbook but i want to shift a little bit to your post on the uh top ed tech trends of 2011 on Mm -hmm. the ipad yeah because clearly the ipad is still doing something that nobody else is doing which is wow the wow factor
1: yes and I think it's, you know, I mean, in the I've seen the iPad in the hands of, I write this in the post, I've seen the iPads in the hands of my two-year-old niece, my you know, my five-year-old nephew, and I've seen it in the hands of my 70-year-old father. And they've both, I mean, th- both of those demographics, you know, opposite ends of the age spectrum, have picked up the iPad and have sort of got it right away. And... I think that that was one of the things with the with the Kindle Fire is that it wasn't intuitive. Um, it wasn't easy to to navigate or to find where buttons were hidden. And, and I think that there's something that that wow factor is is important, particularly when you're putting a device in the hands of, of folks who are unfamiliar with unfamiliar with technology.
0: Fascinating. Your prediction had been this would be the year of the handheld or the tablet. Yeah,
1: I was so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's,
0: our, that's okay that's what predictions are for okay so uh uh you write in mind shift about the competition winners uh for taking the library slash museum as learning lab model and spreading it yeah this seems to me to be so brilliant
1: i love this idea and i think that i mean i think that you know when we hear a lot all this hand wringing about sort of the the death of the library in part because of the move to digital content. I think it's a great time for librarians to be able to remind folks that what they offer is so much more than just a book repository and the library is the community's learning center. It really is. And so what does it mean now when we get to put more tools and more tools in the library so that, you know, people who patrons aren't just, quote, reading books or reading magazines or stopping by to sort of read the newspaper, but they actually get to build things, um, hands-on building experiments with, you know, software, making music, making movies. It's exciting, I think.
0: Yes, and I'm going to follow up on this because I'm really interested in David Lurcher's learning commons ideas and how they relate to this learning lab model. And I know there are schools who are implementing this, and I'm really curious to see how they're doing. Okay, Um, in a post called, What Will Universities Ed Tech Companies Do With All This Student Data? Yeah. I, I, I got to wondering about big data, and especially as it relates to the students. And we've talked about this before, but is this... Is this maybe the red herring of the 2010s? Are we going to look back and say, oh, this actually really helped us? Or is this just a place that we're going to have chased off and then come back and say, you know, that wasn't really that important?
1: Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that we are generating such mind-boggling amounts of data that it really does seem, you know, I mean, it really does seem like there's going to be a lot of insights. There's a potential for a lot of insights to be had, particularly when it comes to education, um my, f- my fears are that we're going to be busy looking at sort of continuing to look at the wrong data, um, or not the wrong data, but just some certain kinds of data, c- test scores perhaps, or certain, certain computer I- interactions, and we will miss the boat on other sorts of insights. But I, I do think that you know, data is going to be a big trend for, uh, for, uh, for next year.
0: I'm going to put my early vote in for partial red herring status. <laughs> I'll be I'll be interested to see how we look back on this because I feel like if we look at the examples of educational systems that we that we think are really doing a good job of helping students, I don't feel like they're data driven. Mm-hmm. I just don't. We'll see. Okay, uh what is commons in a box?
1: So commons in a box so uh the City University of New York a uh, s- couple of years ago recognized that they were sort of uh, they have a number of campuses there, and they wanted to build sort of a a university social network um, but one that was sort of geared towards academia so that people could share their um, could sort of share their work openly, they could share their research, so that you know members of the um, you know members of the English department on one campus could could collaborate more easily with. Members of the English department on other campuses, or members of the history department on the same campus, perhaps. So they've made these open source tools, and um, last week announced that they were making a uh, making a a, an, a package available so that others could adopt this. And so it's a word, it's a WordPress installation with um, some other open source tools designed to make it pretty simple for schools to sort of roll their own social. Academic network.
0: Do You think that uh, that this is actually going to make a difference by putting it? I mean, it is open source software. Is is this just sort of a chance to get some visibility, or will this being in a box really make a difference for implementation?
1: This is an interesting thing. I mean, and this is something it ties back almost to our discussion of consumer adoption of technology versus enterprise tech. Um, and I wrote this week about a new another new learning management system that that um, is making its move by appealing directly to teachers to adopt it rather than asking schools to. And the case with learning with the commons in a box that makes it, that I think will make it a challenge, is that it's actually going to require university IT support. So this isn't something that an that a individual professor could say, you know what, I want this. Or an individual department even necessarily could say, I want, we want this. It's something that's going to, you know, require the university itself to um, to implement it. And again, I think these are some of the these are some of the um, uh, you know the obstacles I think to having to having these technologies implemented, particularly, unfortunately, open source technology. So
0: the reference you're making to that post was on CourseKit, right? Yeah, yeah, CourseKit. The student-created learning management system. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I was discouraged by that report in two regards. One was I just don't think marketing directly to teachers is going to be effective.
1: Me neither. I mean, I, I, well, then, well,
0: yeah. <laughs> well, the number two was. This sort of vague revenue model of once we get adoption, then we're gonna it'll be a platform for content distribution. Yeah, and I sort of felt like okay, well, I'm you know sorry guys.
1: (laughs) No, I mean, and I think you know I do think that marketing to I mean I I should say I think that marketing to teachers is a is a great move in some cases, but I think that when you're talking about a tool like this, um, and a learning management or a resource sharing tool, that a lot of the tech uh, forward-thinking educators are already going to have sort of tools in their toolbox that can do this. So if I want an easy way to share course content with my students and I don't want to use a traditional learning management system then I'm gonna use a blog per- perhaps or I'm gonna make a wiki or I'm going to, wiki, um, I'm going to um, you know, turn to some other I mean at the higher ed level I might use Google+. Um, so I think that there are a lot of other tools in place that would make course kit sort of uh, relevant. And again, why would I mean, I'm always nervous about using using tools, free tools that don't have a clear revenue plan. I mean, who knows if they're going to be around in a year? That's a big investment to make.
0: I love the social aspect of it. I love the thought of building technologies that just appeal to us at a human level and get adopted by teachers. Yes. But I would be nervous for for a project like this. Uh, to be based on the idea they were going to be able to sell to individual teachers. Right. Okay, so you did a little bit of a rant. (laughs) Pay a blogger day provided you with a chance to say something. (laughs) So let's give you a chance to say them verbally.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, this is one of the things that I struggle with a lot with hack education. And sometimes I think about sort of clarifying uh, some of the about me stuff on on the blog is that it really is – I don't make any money on hack education. It's really my opportunity to sort of rant. Um, I do rant a lot on hack education. And if I had an editor or advertisers or sponsors, I have to wonder if I would be so um, sassy there. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Stirring things up. (laughs) Right. And so, you know, I mean, mean, I'm I'm fortunate as a writer that I do have other places where, um, I get you know I get paid to write for MindShift, for example. I get paid to write for Inside Higher Ed, and I do, but I don't make any money on Hack Education, and and it's it's interesting because I do think there's a lot of great content available on the internet, and I love the idea of individuals you know supporting the content that they like, um, but I also think that there is great, and and I should say too that I wish that academia in particularly at higher at the higher ed level. I wish there was more recognition that the work that you do on your blog is qu- sort of, quote, real, real scholarship. Um, but that being said, I do like the, the way of having, a, having an open and unfettered s- space where I can write about things. But then again, I, I, but then again, I suck at business models, so <laughs> I don't know. Like, I could just be using that inability to make money on hack education because I, I'm not a business student, so...
0: Well, I'm glad you're doing it. Okay, favorite posts this week were definitely the library's learning space and this students teaching the tech. Yes. This is not a new idea. Gen Yes has been doing this for yes, years. and I actually
1: found out after I wrote the story that the school is actually using the Gen Yes uh, curriculum.
0: I'm glad you found that out. Yeah. I'm not sure I would have known it, but it sure sounded like they might be. Um, this is Sylvia Martinez's work, and... Um, well Sylvia's sort of the the I mean, she's not the guy who's there who's what's his name? I never remember his name, but anyway, it's the sort of the, the main face of gen yes um and this is something that they've been doing for a long time but it's I, what I loved about this was this idea of actually really flipping the classroom yes and what we know about how we learn when we teach and what we also know about uh, roles of uh, students being in these positions uh Tell me what you like about this, and then I, I want to make one additional connection.
1: Well, I, what, one of the things that I loved about this story was that it's this recognition that this is a school district, the um, uh, Oak Hills local school district in Ohio, that had really spent a lot of money on technology, right? And I think that they recognize that despite having tablets and computers and, you know, netbook carts um, and the having a BYO, you know, bring your own device policy and and real openness and encouragement that t- the tech wasn't being used in the classroom um, and that it was there were still sort of barriers for teachers to adopt adopt technology and so what I love was that instead of, um, sort of instead of, sort of more traditional professional development for those teachers is that they turned to the students and they asked the students to direct the tech uh, the tech implementation which is I mean, I think that that's really exciting. It's exciting for the students who get to sort of drive what, um, what happens, drive their own sort of research and their own projects. But I think it's a really powerful way to take, to, to and it's a powerful recognition that it's not enough to just buy tech or stick tech in the classroom, that it really has, something has to change in order to make instruction and teaching and learning change. And I love it that that's what happened at the school district. And all the way down with elementary schools, who, elementary school students who get to be sort of e learning consultants.
0: This exists at several levels. One of the best and deepest that I've seen is in Brazil, where they have the upper level students, the college level students, creating coursework for the lower grades. Uh, it exists in a language program in Texas where the upperclassmen record all of the podcasts for language instruction uh, for the first year students. Uh, and the idea being that maybe they're not perfect, but the students engage much more when their peers are creating the work. Yeah. And there's just this incredible cycle of learning that takes place. What I really love about this flipped classroom idea is is going even one step further, which is technology is this huge driver right now. The technology is changing the culture. The culture will change education. And a lot of parents are getting left out of these conversations, and uh, the the idea that I've seen that I've really thought was brilliant was having the students um, hold sessions to teach the parents the technology.
1: Yeah, that's. I think that that's one of the things that that's one of the things that the school district is going to look at too, and I think that that is really important, um, uh, w- especially when we think of um, already. I think that there's a a communication gulf between. What happens at home, or what happens at school, and what happens at home, and I think helping equip, um, helping equip uh, parents to move into the, you know, to um, move into this new world is really important.
0: Well, it's helping them to also understand sort of the enormous impact of these technologies in education. Uh, this week, I did an interview, a panel discussion on a search literacy, and I, I came away from this session kind of flabbergasted at how significantly important search literacy is. Uh, just the, uh, how supremely, um, <laughs> I'm going a last for words, I'm so excited, how, how, um, how important it is to, to so much of what I do that I search well yes. and teaching students to search well and how little students and their parents know about this. And this seemed to me to be a great avenue for sort of drilling down on this. Uh, and try, In fact, I'm trying to convince Google that they should do a search matters kind of campaign.
1: They should. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think that, you know, it's, and it's, it's a form of literacy that I think we're just now starting to recognize. But it certainly ties into all sorts of community literacy, um, you know, finding the resources that you need to be, a, uh, to be a functioning member of society, to be an active and informed citizen and to be a good parent whether that's healthcare or, um, you know, or anything.
0: Okay. So in our final sort of look at a specific post before we go to the roundup news, you talk about another ed tech trend of 2011 and that's social media. Yeah. And uh, what's interesting for me about this piece, again, is it kind of brings me back to this tech driving culture, driving education rather than pedagogy. But it feels as though we're rediscovering social learning because of social media. Is that a fair connection?
1: No, and I think that that's one of the, I think that that's actually a very exciting um, piece here is is it's this recognition that um, collaboration and communication and kids working together um, is, uh, kids teaching each other, learning from each other is really powerful. And the forces that are cracking, you know, that are sort of cracking down on even tools like Facebook. Um, I think are sort of missing the boat in recognizing that um, that these these are powerful places for people to sort of share sh- share status updates, sure, but for people to actually work together.
0: Yeah, fascinating. Okay, so shall we do a really quick run through then of two weeks of news? Two weeks of news. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm trying to remember what it was. This past year in Britain, they cut education budgets by about 30 or 35.
1: They did, yes.
0: And I keep thinking this is the shoe that's yet to drop. Right. That in the financial crisis, we're going to see this as well. Do you think that's the case?
1: I do think that's the case. I mean, and I, I, we've seen we've seen um, already, or you know, people are predicting the failure of the super committee, for example, to to uh, to come to agreements that. That already by 2013 we're going to see huge cuts in the education budgets, and I think that's going to trickle down definitely to the state level. Um, and and I think if we look closely, if we look closely for the reason why, you know, tuition has gone up at universities, it's because you know that because these universities no longer have the funding from from their states, um, and they're they're offloading this, they're offloading the costs onto onto the students.
0: It, that would seem to be kind of a gentle uh, interpretation, right? Because having student lo- the easy availability of student loans also kind of made it easy to raise tuitions? I think so.
1: I mean, I, I think, think in, mean, I think in I think part, hard, but I think, the, it's, 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 I think that it's... I think that something else, else as well, well you, know, you know, and it's the... the I mean, I think the the that we're seeing services, all, sorts, all of sorts of things of costing more on campus. campus.
0: Interesting. Okay, I'm a hardcore Google fan, and I haven't even considered buying a Chromebook.
1: <laughs> yeah, don't. Why? Uh, in
0: fact, my netbook is is lonely. It's calling out to me and saying, why do I ignore it? Uh, my tablet has replaced the small form factor device for me. Is the Chromebook going to make any difference here?
1: You know, this is funny. I was on, Last week, I was in... Um, in San Francisco for, um, I won a, it was called the Media Predicts Award, and I had to stand, or be on stage with sort of someone from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and Time Magazine, and I had to predict what I thought was going to happen, one of my big predictions for 2012, and it was actually that Google is going to axe the Chromebook. Um, I like the Chromebook. I think it's a great device. I think it's, I think in some ways that the netbook um, is a is a superior tool for students, particularly for students at the K twelve K twelve level, than the than the tablet is yet. Um, but I'm just not sure that Google has seen uh, the up the uptake with the Chromebook in such a way to, that they will continue the project. I mean, Google is axing all sorts of things right and left, and I just I just have this feeling that the Chromebook is going to be on the chopping block early next year.
0: Interesting. I, I'm going to say that. A- the two apps have sort of dramatically changed what I do and how I do it. Evernote, mm-hmm. Now I'm now probably a couple of years into Evernote, and just what a significant change in my own practice. And I don't need the netbook to do it. I can do it just fine on the tablet. Interestingly enough, Thinking Space, which is a, is only available on my tablet, and it means I'm spending time on my tablet that I wouldn't be spending somewhere else. Intriguing to me. Okay, MIT OpenCourseWare students overtake self learners. Did I read that right? The use of MIT OpenCourseWare is now greater by the students at the school. St-
1: yeah, I think that this is an this is an interesting thing that we're starting to see is this recognition now with all that with all of these materials that are available online, whether it's MIT OpenCourseWare or Khan Academy, that for a long time this was the promise of the of the DIY learner, the self motivated learner. And this year MIT has found that, that the people who are turning to their resources are actually students in classes who are taking those specific classes already um, so I think that's a, that's definitely a shift in how we conceive of the, um, these uh, these uh, this content that's available that it that it um, it makes perhaps the pressure to sort of do interesting and engaging things with that content. Perhaps it diminishes that. I'm not sure, um, because for, you know, if, if if a student is actually taking sort of intro to engineering um, already, they're in a class and they're just looking for sort of better lecture material or a more easy to understand explanation. Um, that sort of shifts the burden away from those, from um, the courseware providers from sort of doing something social or providing an interesting infrastructure around it.
0: Yeah, that was sort of stunning to me. Okay, what does Ray Bradbury have against the internet?
1: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Are not you intrigued?
0: I'm uh, inquiring minds want to know.
1: Um, but- that is, I it's, it's funny. Um, you know, I think that I have to wonder about someone who, for me at least, I, I think of, um, you know, I, I've always been a fan of science fiction. And when I, whenever I find someone who, I, who, even as a young girl, I thought of as sort of envisioning sort of the future and other worlds and, you know, uh, space travel, for example, it is funny to find them opposed to something that I see as perhaps uh, far, you know, we have far more people um, traveling through cyberspace than we ever will. I think have people you know than we've ever sent to the moon or into space.
0: That was interesting. Okay, so according to the Software and Information Industry Association, the market for ed software and digital content has grown to seven point five billion. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I, yeah. Um, I mean, I I think that that news made a lot of entrepreneurs go ka-ching, but I'm not. I'm I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure quite what what to think of this, and partially because I see these trends of things moving. Well, partially I wonder about these calculations. Um, you know, what get, what, uh, I think that education technology is getting more and more muddied um, now that it's not clear if a class, or it's not clear if the tools that are used in the classroom are sort of educational tools. Evernote's a great example, right? D- does Evernote, is Evernote educational software? Um
0: is it in that seven point five billion?
1: Right. I mean, and I, I'm the same as you. I mean, Evernote is certainly the cornerstone of a lot of my work world. Um, but I think that as you know, as we move away from just having sort of sales to schools or, or um, to this this more consumer oriented market, um, I, I don't, I, I don't know sort of how these figures are going to sort of hold up. Which isn't to say there isn't opportunity, uh, you know, for entrepreneurs. Um, But again, and what does this mean in terms of the textbook industry? Does does the, you know, as the textbook industry sort of fades away, um, what will replace it? Will it be more expensive digital content or will people turn to openly licensed, openly available, um, free alternatives?
0: So I'd like to end with a question that I don't think you're going to be able to answer, (laughs) but it will give us a laugh. What in the world is ePals doing? (laughs)
1: <laughs> I don't know. I mean, and ePals has made a number of acquisitions recently. They're um I think a couple of weeks ago they announced that they were sort of moving into China. Um I don't know. I mean, it, it's one of these um it's one of these sort of uh, older education technology companies that I guess has deep pockets and um has to clear some line items off of it uh, to you know for the 2011 fiscal year I don't know
0: well what it made me realize was that there are a group of companies and I I'm not really sure that Epal was in this category before I think it was a, a sort of a group of AOL people came over to Epal Epal's but they're in this category of being a financial company to me more than being an education company. Mm-hmm. It feels as though the decision making is around kind of Wall Street decision making right. rather than education decision making. And how do we feel about that? And what place does it take in educational technology?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, I think that we're starting to see that actually um, with a number of these older, um, these older, more established um, ed tech companies. Um, in which they're definitely making strategic decisions that are based on um, either they see them as based in sort of new markets, right, so it's expanding into Brazil, expanding into China, um, and offering different sorts of services, I would say, there as well. Um, that definitely, I think you're right, that it seems like the number of equity firms that now own these um, these education companies um, are certainly Certainly, funneling funneling their energy, funneling their money into um, other avenues.
0: Well, I'm sure that's not the last we'll be talking about that. <laughs> Audrey, thank you so much for all that you do.
1: Yes, thank you, Steve.
0: Perfect to spend time with you next week. We promise to be on schedule again. Yes.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll talk to you. Have then. a
0: great week. Bye. Bye.